I just got out of basic training. Star Wars basic training. For the first time in my entire life, I watched episode four all the way through. Yes, bring on the stocks and the shackles and pelt me with rotten tomatoes. Until this week, I didn't know a Wookiee from a Jawa. If someone had told me they found my lack of faith disturbing, I would have taken them for a Bible-thumping evangelical Christian and mentioned C-3PO, and I'd have thought it was some obscure tax form I'd overlooked. Now, I wasn't completely ignorant. I mean, I was a kid when Star Wars burst into existence, and I would have to have been skulking under a huge boulder for the past 38 years not to have stumbled across multiple references to the blockbuster saga in trailers, TV spoofs, YouTube videos, merchandise, dinner conversations that I couldn't take part in, and social media. I knew that R2-D2 was that sort of shuffling pet doggy type droid that bore a resemblance to a shop vacuum cleaner, but I had no idea he had such an important data-carrying role in the first Star Wars film. I'm calling him a he. Um, Is that an erroneous or even sexist assumption? began to experience cognitive dissonance during the opening sequence. You see, I thought Star Wars, for all its special effects and plethora of oddball characters, would be a pretty standard tale of archetypal goodies and baddies, with factions that were called straightforward goody and baddie names. I mean, if you're going to chuck it as a throng of strange, never-before-encountered species, with looks that don't necessarily reflect easily categorizable allegiances like the good, the true and the beautiful, as opposed to the ugly, the dirty and the bad, then at least use names for the opposing sides that aren't ambiguous. As my eyes sought to keep up with the fast-rolling, slanted sentences outlining the premise of the story, rapidly disappearing onto the horizon, I had to consciously switch gears over the rebels and the empire. Rebels sound sort of baddies, you know, causing a brouhaha and general nuisance. I'm thinking James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause, or Marlon Brando and his band of motorbike yobbos in The Wild One. And empire, well... I've had occasion to play Queen Victoria in a couple of audio productions, and as the newsreader in a spoof 1940s podcast drama, I'm always having to announce patriotically, this is the news from the Empire. You see my predisposed orientation? So, because I already knew there was this goody-goody Princess Leia, I just thought the Empire was one of her kingdoms or queendoms or whatever. Okay, reframe, reframe. It seems that what we're dealing with here is a rabble of heroic, anti-colonial, picketing union workers protesting against an alien dictatorship. Right? Then there are those hard-to-remember names of the planets that Princess Leia reportedly drops in on now and again. Uh, What are they? Anderon? The one that Peter Cushing blows to smithereens. Oops, I'd better stop using Harry Potter-ish sounding words or I'm really going to get confused. Then there's the one where she claims the Death Star plans are under lock and key. What is it, Daikon? No, that's a sort of radish. And again, we're slipping dangerously back to Hogwarts territory. There's the one that Luke flies to with Obi-Wan Kenobi to find something or other and and meets bad attitude dude Harrison Ford. Begins with a a T, I think. Terrawi, Terrawan, I don't know. I can't remember. Anyway, it sounds like an elf from Lord of the Rings. And while we're on Obi-Wan Kenobi, Obi-Wan Kenobi, I'm sorry, but 
It just sounds like something fluffy and cute, like a Smurf or a Furby or something. I just can't reconcile giant of British drama and film Alec Guinness with that cutesy name. Alec Guinness. Obi-Wan Kenobi. Anyway, they all meet in some bar where, despite Luke's juvenile looks, he surprisingly doesn't get carded. Now that bit in the film I really liked. All those weirdos in the bar. That was right up my alley. The band playing delightfully incongruous sort of 1920s ragtime, reminded me of The Residents, this odd group of musicians and performance artists that emerged in the 1970s wearing tuxedos and with enlarged eyeballs as heads. But, oh dear, that ridiculous rust-coloured carpet roll thing with the annoying bray. What's his name? Chewbacca? I don't recall seeing him smoking, never mind chomping on the contents of Rizzler Rolops. Now, on the subject of Luke and Harrison, incidentally, I have no recollection of ever having heard his character's name, Han Solo. Anyway, Luke and Solo. We have this noble, ambitious, self-sacrificing young idealist pitted against the sardonic, bolshy, antisocial personality-disordered Harrison. And it's obvious from the get-go that the groundwork is being laid here for a tense rivalry for Princess Leia's affections. Implications being, helped by the obvious distinction between Carrie Fisher's furrowed brow snappiness with Harrison and cocked head eyelash fluttering in the face of Luke, that she's going to go for the pasty-faced youth with too much beige foundation, rather than the cranky but ruggedly sexy older man. Why? I looked at Carrie Fisher's birth date before I watched, and found that she was 21 when she played Princess Leia in that first film. And I have to say that she comes across as remarkably composed and self-assured for her age. And her voice has the maturity of a woman ten years older. And props to whoever did the casting for not putting a curvaceous, cleavage-flaunting bimbo in the role. OK, I know there's some golden bikini thing that comes later, but I haven't got that far yet. No, here she's delightfully frumpy. Oh, and thank goodness. 38 years ago, vocal fry wasn't yet an obligatory attribute for any female under 35. I mean, can you imagine? Governor Tarkin, I should have expected to find you holding Vader's leash. I recognized her foul when I was brought on board. Aren't you a little too short for a stormtrooper? Then there was the garbage scene, which, though very dramatic and had me on the edge of my seat, hoping they wouldn't get squished, was just like every other movie scene where something bad, bad, bad is encroaching. Those last few seconds where, visually, you're told that the end is nigh in a few seconds. The twirling blade is centimetres away from the neck of the heroine on the gurney. Or the train is but metres away from the cowgirl on the tracks. And in this case, the sides of the dustbin are inches from crushing our protagonists into recyclables. But, as usual, the sides of the crusher seem to have sprung back just a tad wider each time they cut back to the scene. And the last moments of life somehow managed to get elongated into minutes of, meanwhile, action. While the hero, or heroes, in this case the tax form droid and his doggy pal R2-D2, figure out how to stop the machinery of doom finishing its cycle of dirty work. OK, all the battle stuff left me bored. There was one particular Lord of the Rings film which seemed to be nothing but battles and had me sliding dazed down in my seat in the cinema. This reminded me of that. I'm just not really into battles, so I could have done without all that rigmarole. 
finally, I feel I must say a few words about Princess Leia's flat affect. When Peter Cushing zaps her planet, you know, all her people, including presumably her coffee-clutch girlfriends, her best friend forever, not to mention probably her granny and the hunk across the road that she quite fancied, she expresses the kind of surprise and disgruntlement that might accompany an exclamation of, What the fuck? Whatever. She never seems fearful or terrified, even when she's standing on that ledge on the Death Star with Luke looking down at the seemingly uncrossable chasm, nor later when she's dodging the deathly beams of the stormtroopers shooting. Her reaction is on a par with being irritated by a fly buzzing too close to her face. Has Princess Leia ever had a psych evaluation? In the last scene, after Frankenstein, I mean Peter Cushing, and his dastardly powers have been disintegrated with the Death Star by Luke managing to hit the bullseye, she's all doled up to the nines and receives Luke, tax form droid and doggy doo dee too, looking pretty pleased with herself. And I'm wondering, why is she so unfazed by all the psychologically traumatising events she's witnessed in the last couple of hours? Her home and significant others have all been exterminated, so she has no one to rule or celebrate Thanksgiving with anymore. And now, she seems to be the only woman among hundreds of semi-catatonic men. What's that about? You know what? On second thoughts, maybe insipid Luke is just right for her. He's gentle, easygoing, and won't arouse too much emotion in her. Because I think she's repressing a lot of emotions. Harrison, on the other hand, with his brawny, male chauvinist, obnoxious spunk, is just too provocative. He makes you want to punch him in the face and throw yourself down on the ground with him in a vicious roll-around brawl that ends in torrid make-up sex. Uh, no. No. Princess Leia just can't let herself go like that. We'll see if I'm right in the next episodes. I still think she needs that psychological evaluation. (laughs) 